Welcome back, AAP subscribers and AAP podcast subscribers. Chris, Chris Versace here. I, I'm so tongue-tied because I'm so excited today. Uh, we've got a really great guest on this podcast episode, and we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. Uh, very near and dear to listeners' hearts and minds, given where we are in the market, questions about the Fed, questions about the economy, all that and much more. So on the podcast, please join me in welcoming Jim Besaw, who's the uh, co-founder and chief investment officer over at Gen Trust. And, and Jim's background, I got to tell you, pretty impressive time at J.P. Morgan, where he uh, headed up the fixed income options trading desk. He's with Barclays and a whole, another of un, excuse me, a number of other high-profile firms. But for this conversation, Jim is the CIO, like I said, of Gen Trust. So, Jim, with that, apologies for being a little tongue-tied. Like I said, I'm just I'm a little excited today to talk to you because we're we're kind of at this point where you know the December quarter earnings season is kicking into gear. We're about to get a whole raft of economic data, and the Fed's next policy meeting is going to conclude uh, the day after we have this conversation. So, so much to talk about. Yeah, there's certainly a lot going on in the markets right now, Chris, and thanks for having me on the uh, the show. I really, really appreciate the invite and the opportunity to speak with uh, with your listeners. Um, you know, the markets have been pretty quiet in January. I think every everybody's been waiting for what's going to happen in the in the near future here with the data. So, uh, you know, it, it gets boring when not much has happened. So I'm kind of I'm kind of excited for the next few weeks to uh, to see where the market goes. So. Uh I, I am too. And, and you know, I, I talked with you quickly about this earlier, Jim, but when I was reading your bio, it, it it's um, the thing that jumped out to me was kind of the following. And it's your primary responsibility is to remain practical and analytical across all market conditions. And that really jumped out to me because it, it, it I, I get the sense that you're like me in that you let the data talk to you. Right, you don't superimpose your opinion on the data. You really want to understand what's happening. So you're probably a guy who not only sees the headline data, but I imagine you roll your sleeves up, you get into the weeds, uh, so you can understand, as we like to say, what is really going on. Absolutely, I, I think that you know, being a successful investor, being a successful trader, it's it's being humble and being willing to admit when you're wrong and when the data tells you something different than what your thesis was so you know i think i think the listeners out there that that have been successful at at doing what we all love to do are the ones that can acknowledge when things have changed and when when the market's moved in a different direction so we spent a lot of time trying to understand the data we spent a lot of time trying to understand what's priced into markets um and we really try to understand where things can be different and maybe misperceived and you know i think one of those particular areas and i don't i don't want to lead the discussion but but we've been having a lot of debate internally about fed policy and and kind of what's priced in because i think a lot of a lot of what markets are doing is really premised on the fact that we're going to get this soft landing and four mm -hmm. to five eases next year and you know really kind of a goldilocks type scenario so um you know, you, you mentioned my background. My my background is in fixed income, so maybe that's why I'm pushing you towards Fed policy to, no, to kind no. of start off. But uh, but you know, for me, it's it's 
it's been a lot more important in the last two years, I think, than it has in the previous 10 years before that. So um, it's particularly, you know, a good time for us to kind of apply what, what we know and, and, and everything. So, well, you know, it, let's, before we talk about, you know, the road ahead in the, you know, near to medium term, let, let's just go back a little bit because, you know, the market was kind of uh, getting a little frothy and then, um, Towards the uh, September October timeframe, we had quarterly earnings, and then we came up to uh, the Fed pivot, as everybody likes to say, in December. Mm-hmm. You know, the the inflation data was getting a little bit better. You know, leading up to that, and the pet and the Fed did say in early December, "Hey, we we think we have you know maybe three rate cuts." That's what we quote, as Powell likes to say, penciled in for 2024, and you know, it, it's interesting because the market. Obviously, thought they were conservative. The CME Fed Watch tool, you know, at, soon after said, "Oh, it's really more like six rate cuts," and now it's maybe like five to six. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating to me is that even though, let's say, last week's December uh, PCE Core price index was 2.9 percent, breaking that level of three percent, people getting excited. Um, not all the inflation data is moving the right way. You know, the December core CPI was still at 3.9%, ways away from the Fed, from the Fed's 2% target. We've got oil mm-hmm. prices that have moved higher. We've got um, disruption in the Red Sea that is, you know, having an issue on supply chains and other things. So I, I guess my question is, I kind of recap all that to you, Jim, is uh, do you, how many rate cuts do you see happening this year? And and why is the market thinking it could get as many as five? Yeah, so so great question, um, and uh, something that we've talked a lot about internally. Um, and and I always tell people that that most of the market focuses on the mean number of rate cuts that are priced in, but the reality is when you look at Fed policy, you, you really should look at different states of the world. So. The analogy that I always use to people is, what's your favorite dessert, Chris? Tell me what your favorite dessert is. Uh, where are we eating, Jim? That really any, matters. Any, anywhere you'd like. <laughs> you, you tell me what your favorite dessert is. So chocolate uh, cake, cheesecake, uh, you name it. Oh, um, I, I, I'm going to go kind of pedestrian on this. Let's just go chocolate ice cream. Chocolate ice cream. Okay. So if I told you, Chris, that tonight, on average, you're going to have one bowl of chocolate ice cream, you'd be pretty excited, right? You'd say, oh, that's great. You know, I love chocolate ice cream. It's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But if in reality, that one bowl of chocolate ice cream on average is an 80% chance you have zero bowls of chocolate ice cream and a 20% chance that I give you five bowls of ice cream, which make you sick, that wouldn't feel as good. So Uh, I think we're in the market. First off, Jim, you don't know you don't know me that well, and I can handle five <laughs> bowls of ice cream. So maybe maybe five was too late. Maybe I should have <laughs> said a ten percent chance of ten bowls of ice cream. So um, I, I I think that you know when the market's looking at these numbers of of five cuts priced in, the the reality is what what is really which would be a great scenario for risk assets risk risk assets, assuming that inflation doesn't get out of control if you have that sort of uh, policy. The reality is five cuts is really more like, you know, a, a relatively high probability, 50, 60, 70 percent of zero and also a really high probability of something like 10 to 15 cuts. So and in the scenario where you have 10 to 15 Fed cuts, that's probably not a good environment, right? It's probably not 
things are going okay, we just need to cut a little more, it's probably the wheels are falling off the bus and we need to do something to to recover from. So if you think of that, the fact that the the, the equity market has performed so well with the hopes of these four or five cuts, it's a, it's a little bit misplaced because if I instead told you there's going to be two possible outcomes, one is zero cuts or the other one is a recession and you're going to need 10 or 15 cuts just to 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 manage growth, um, you probably wouldn't be as excited about uh, about risk assets. So so I think, you know, if you look at markets in that way, it really paints a different picture than how um, than how markets are perceiving this. And 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 the economists at the Fed they think the same way, right? Their, their mm-hmm. estimates of three, four, five cuts, in their mind, they're not thinking we're probably going to cut three or four or five times. They might be thinking there's a good chance we don't cut at all. There's a good chance that we have to cut aggressively. Maybe there's some chance they cut once or twice. Um, the interesting thing is that the narrative of Fed hikes has almost totally gone away. And, yes. and, you, and you mentioned a little bit about a lot of the risk factors that are there. You've got um, food prices that have been coming down really quickly, but really kind of stopped in the last three or four months. Um, and that's a pretty big component, especially for for uh, the lower middle, you know, lower to middle income part of the of the economy. If you have food places start to go back up or you have other supply chains disruptions because of the issues that you spoke about in, in the Red Sea, the risk that inflation starts to go back up is 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 real. It's it's non-zero. Add to that the fact that if you do have a Fed that decides to cut three, four, five times in like a gradual fashion, that's also, I mean, who knows where the equity market goes in that scenario, but that has to be inflationary to some extent because you're effectively telling consumers and investors, you know, go for it. Like, like here's the punch bowl back. So, well, there, there's also the fact that if we look at, you know, uh, the treasury market, the 10 year in particular, you know, credit conditions have loosened already. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they they certainly have loosened. I mean, it was as recent as uh, October, I believe, that we, you know, we hit the the five year, five percent uh, mark in, in 10 year treasuries. And the interesting thing is the the response that I got from from clients and from friends is they're more excited about buying 10 year treasuries at four percent now that we're back down here than they were at five when it was up at five, <laughs> um, which which often happens with with markets and stuff. I, I think that, you know, uh, that that has eased things a little bit. Mortgage rates are still, you know, seven percent headline, probably six percent in most cases. If you know, if you if you have good banking relationships and 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 can negotiate those, which which I think is manageable. I mean, those are not, um, you know, those are not levels where the housing market grinds to a halt. Um, but they certainly are levels that I think create a lot of issues for several several businesses. Um, uh, you know, obviously, commercial real estate has been talked about tremendously uh, in the last year, and and I think you know, 2024, you're going to see a lot of refinancing have to take place or try to take place. Uh, I'm sure we're going to continue to see defaults. Um, I don't know what the fallout is there necessarily. Um, it feels like there's a lot of talk about it, which generally that means you're kind of past the worst part. Um, you know, it, it was kind of interesting last year to see how calm the rest of the markets were, given what was going on in commercial. I mean, you had commercial real estate bonds that traded down to 10 cents on the dollar in a lot of cases. So um, you would not have guessed that if you were looking at headline indices like the NASDAQ or uh, or the S&P. So. 
Okay. Okay. Now you said there were a couple other areas you were looking at. Commercial real estate was one. What would be another one? In terms of uh, you know, kind of really really gauging the market, I I think that um, the 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 increasing amount of layoffs that we've seen, um, you know, clearly recessions usually the main characteristic of recession is is unemployment goes up, and so far we've been able to uh, you know to manage virtually limited if if not zero increase in in unemployment um you're starting to see a lot of of headlines uh just today mm -hmm. we saw ups um right. you know, announcing layoffs you know last year it was a lot of the tech sector you know uh, amazon meta microsoft google um you know this year we've seen american airlines like you know a bunch of kind of more traditional type companies um citigroup um you know, I think that for the most part, there seems to be a bit of a transition that's going on in the labor market. So, you know, when you get <clears throat> a dozen companies laying off 10,000 workers, you might think, okay, well, that's a big deal. What's, you know, what's going on? But it seems like there's there's jobs for them in other places. Um, mm -hmm. You know, whenever you have this sort of uh, migration, which, um, you know, I think technology is creating a lot of migration, right? You're a lot of businesses are developing technology where all of a sudden they don't need somebody to just press that button all day long. They need them to program instead. And so, you know, it, it, it might be an announced layoff, but really it might be at the same time a job posting for somebody that, you know, can write code or can take code from chat GPT and make it work. You know, those sort of those sort of skills that, uh, you know, that the market's looking for. So I, I think to the extent that the the layoffs become um, uh, repetitive. Um, you know, we always joked, uh, well, not joked, but when you're in finance, layoffs happen a lot. And we always said, you know, layoffs come in threes. There's usually three waves. So whenever firms decide to, to, to fire people, there's usually the initial wave, then there's a second wave, then there's the third wave usually happens kind of near the bottom or, or, or the end of the cycle. So, you know, right now, I think we've gone from the first wave to the second wave with some companies, but we're still kind of in the first wave with a lot of them. So I think kind of continuing to see the progress uh, on the labor market will be particularly useful for us in terms of gauging whether or not we're going to we're going to enter a recession. Um, well, we're going to get a lot of data this week. I mean, you know, today we got the JOLTS report for December, mm -hmm. more job openings, people a little that's kind of uh, raising some eyebrows to some folks. But we've yep. also got uh, the ADP uh, employment change report. And then later in the week, we have the January uh, employment report. And then, of course, we get some sprinklings between the ISM data on employment as well for manufacturing and services. So that will mm -hmm. be something that we continue to keep our eyes on as well. But but Jim, you know, if you're kind of letting the data talk to you and we, we notice that um, coming into the week that the S&P 500 was classically overbought, RSI over 70, NASDAQ mm -hmm. composite kind of flirting with that. Um, what, what are you looking to see to kind of put capital to work, fresh capital to work? Yeah, so I, I, I think that um, when we're making the decision on whether to deploy, first of all, for the, for the most part, we're 100% invested whether it's in fixed income or equities or or real assets or or alternatives for our clients so um usually that decision gets made when clients give us more money which happens a lot in january because you've got you know 
lots of clients are in finance and they're getting bonuses in January and February. So there is there is a decision process to to doing that. Um, I think we're pretty humble in in our view that it's very difficult to time markets. Uh, things can behave in ways that you don't expect them to for extended periods of time. So I think from a from a uh, overall allocation perspective, we're not super focused on whether or not now is the right time to invest. I think more of the focus is on what should we invest in. Um, and, and we're going through kind of a classic cycle where you've got a very handful of leaders that you know the magnificent seven that everybody's referring to or i guess Splen the magnificent six splendid, the blended six. six now yeah exactly the, the <laughs> tesla got kicked out um so so you know those cycles tend to happen and i think the natural instinct for most people is why well, i want to own those companies those are the companies that i see as being you know the the leaders of the future which which may very well be true um and i think that they have a position in people's portfolios but i think there's a lot of other things that are that are uh, you know have a lot less growth that needs to happen in order for them to succeed um you know small cap stocks and mid cap stocks uh, of particular interest to us recently um mainly because you know the 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 larger cap indices have become so heavily weighted to a handful of names um and and the small and mid cap really just haven't haven't performed as well so you know the small cap indice for the most part it's a lot of banks it's a lot of biotech. It's really healthcare and, and and financial services, and those are two sectors that that haven't been doing that well recently. So, um, I think from that perspective, you know, we've we've started to allocate more capital to to those, not because we think the the blended six or magnificent seven are going to necessarily fall off a cliff. I think it's more just that over time you shouldn't make decisions about when to invest you should make decisions about what to invest in um and certainly you know buying companies that are trading at 40 50 pe if you do that consistently it's going to be a really challenging environment even if i mean to grow at 20 30 percent which is what's priced in when your 100 billion dollar company is really hard to grow at 20 30% when you're a 3 trillion dollar company is extraordinarily hard um you know without uh, some sort of government intervention <laughs> saying you've gotten too big and too important. So, yeah. uh, which, you know, who knows how far away that, that potential conversation might be. So, yeah, I mean, look, there's, uh, if you weave through the magnificent seven splendid six, or even you look at, uh, what companies from Taiwan semiconductor are saying, or super micro, uh, last week and this week, you know, th there's a lot riding on, uh, the promise of AI and its disruptive benefits. And, you know, when we had, we saw CES 2024, I think it was interesting because there was a lot of talk um, and products about the incorporation of AI from PCs to smartphones to, to other things. It, mm -hmm. it starts to paint like a real picture around it, not, not this uh, mythical hopium that's out there and oh boy, mm -hmm. it's just chips, chips, chips. Like you, I, in my, my opinion, you, you need to see those disruptors start to mature. You need to see real products, real services that people mm -hmm. can, you know, touch, feel, use, call it what you will. Uh, so I actually get excited when, uh, you know, we start to hear other companies talk about how they're using AI, mm -hmm. um, not not just in, you know, some chat GBT, you know, framework, but driving real productivity, um, real savings. That that to me is where things start to get exciting because it becomes. Um, <laughs> I apologize for framing it this way real absolutely absolutely I, I i couldn't agree more with you i i think that um 
I went to school college in the in the mid 90s and uh, I remember my roommate took a computer science class on artificial intelligence and I remember reading his book and going artificial intelligence like what, what is that that sounds you know total space age um, but this is none of this technology is new I mean a lot of this technology honestly is things that have existed for 20 30 40 50 years it's just now we finally have uh the sensors and the chips and everything to to do stuff with it so i always tell people you know because my my background is in math i always tell people math is 50 to 100 years ahead of society right we're inventing stuff today that we have no idea how it's going to be used but we'll figure it out in about 50 to 100 years and, and that's certainly the case with with ai um we've been using ai internally to manage portfolios uh for uh since 2015 so so almost 10 years um but for us ai is is a lot of what people call ai which i don't really think is ai it's more taking systematic math equations and relationships and like and 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 consistently applying them or looking for the right sort of relationships that you might not be able to see uh uh you know intuitively but but when the data shows it to you you're like oh yeah that makes sense that that would that would be the case so um i thought it was very interesting because we we spent a lot of time and money and effort trying to make ai work for us and you didn't really hear a ton about it until november when uh not last november but but november of 22 when when um uh you know when uh sorry not november 22 november when chat gpt came out and all of a sudden the market is like oh my gosh this is amazing and it's like well yeah i mean if you if you were in and around that world you kind of knew it existed but you didn't realize <laughs> how much people uh especially if you if you have any kids that are in school and all of a sudden they discover that they can ask questions and get very well written answers back from it it's like okay yeah i i i can see that so i i totally agree with you that that the excitement over the technology is only going to blossom when you start to see more and more real applications of how it can be used and not just oh man this ai is not very good because when i try to text somebody and it auto corrects my messages to the wrong word consistently <laughs> like this is not as good as i as i think it is so um so so we're excited about that we're we're long-term believers you know i wish the companies that are predominantly invent you know uh going to be revolutionary in that space weren't trading at such high multiples because i i do think that there's very long-term tailwinds um but very similar to the to the you know technological re revolution with the internet in in the late 90s and stuff i think a lot of the great companies in ai we don't even know about yet right they're not publicly traded companies and and they're still yet to be developed and and come along so so I, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, my, my thinking on that is that this whole AI is going to replicate um, what we saw with the development of the Internet. First and mm -hmm. foremost, to your point, the Internet was around long before the vast majority of people knew it. It was doing a yep. lot of different things kind of in kind of in the background, if you will. Uh, two, um, much like the Internet, uh, I don't think we really know what AI will be able to do for us. You know, I, I've, I've said this before, if uh, I could go back to 1999, 2000 and tell little Jimmy Besaw, hey, Jim, you're going to be getting your, you know, you're going to be, everything you do is going to be online from streaming books to streaming um, video, audio, how you communicate, video calling will be prevalent. 
Um, you know, all those messengers and, you know, photocopies, forget it, they're gone. You know, I, I think people would have a tough time wrapping their head around it. And I, I think that what we're using AI for in 10 years, 15 years will be wildly different than what we're using today. And, the third and then the third comparison is uh, just like the dot-com bubble, um, we could very well be in a little bit of a bubble when it comes to AI stocks. I agree with you that some of the best companies probably have yet to uh, emerge and get funded, but I do think that we will have an opportunity to pick up some of these um, high flyers, uh, probably at better prices. My my, my thinking um, that I've shared with AAP members recently is that um, we're hearing all about the spending and the desire and demand for chips, right? Or racks or um, cloud spend, you know, cloud um, mm -hmm. data centers getting upgrades. Well, someone's got to spend on that. Yeah. And that means that spending runs the risk of being a little higher than we Wall Street analysts might have thought previously. Uh, mm -hmm. That that could be a little bit of a bit of digestion or indigestion for the market. That could be something with a market, as you pointed out, you know, extended uh, with multiples high on these stocks, you know, mm -hmm. price to perfection. It could be something that leads them to pull back a little bit. Could be an opportunity if I'm right. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with you. I think um, you know, one of the differences between the late nineties and today is that the companies that people are pointing to today are actually humongous and very profitable. And so it kind of lets you look the other way a little bit. I mean, in, in nineteen ninety-seven, ninety-eight, ninety-nine, a lot of the companies that were, <laughs> you know, ha had that sort of lure, like they really had no no. They didn't, it's not that they didn't have cash or they didn't have profitability. They didn't even have income so or, 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 or revenue. So 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 I think that, you know, things are a little bit less frothy for sure than they were uh, during that time period. But but you're right. It's just the 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 pace of innovation is so fast. I think it's really hard to look at companies and say this is going to be the winner and nobody else is going to develop anything better in the next 10 to 15 years and they're going to dominate. I, I mean, it's just super unlikely that that's the scenario. Yet, I think a lot of people have that mindset because they only see, you know, AWS uh, servers. They only, you know, use Google for search engines. They only, you know, they're like, well, this is clear the winner. Amazon's the only one who's delivering packages to their door. Like, you know, <laughs> to, 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 to think that anybody is going to unseat those uh, those people for, for a lot of investors seems highly unlikely um and yet you know my dad worked at ibm ibm when he worked there was was the place i mean and nobody ever thought that you know that that they were going to become relatively insignificant and i mean i'm not to say ibm is insignificant but like there was a period in the late 90s and early 2000s mm -hmm, where they mm -hmm. effectively were insignificant even though Ironically, it's funny because they've been talking about Watson for how many years, and now AI is such a big thing, and people even forget to mention their name when they talk about AI. So, <laughs> um, so, so, so I think that I think you're exactly right. I think that there's uh, hopefully the opportunity to to invest in a lot of uh, companies that will do great things on the technology side uh, at better prices, um, you know. But I think 
it's hard to know, <laughs> you know, timing well, markets I, is very, very difficult. So it's, you know, uh, as I often kind of joke, uh, we're not in the business of crockpot investing, right? You, it's not fixed, forget it and walk away, you know, whatever yeah. it's, you know, the, the, the notion of being an active investor doesn't mean you're a trader or a day trader. It means you're actively revisiting the reasons why you own the stocks you own. You're mm -hmm. actively looking for data to support them or data to throw a, you know, a, to borrow the sports analogy, a flag on the play. Oh, what did I miss? Do I need to rethink what I'm doing? And you have to be Absolutely. actively, actively looking for new candidates all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, uh, those are, those are great, uh, guides for anybody that invests and trades. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do because every day you have to question yourself. I mean, w what other walk of life are you where every day you're like, am I doing this right? You know, like <laughs> you, most people's jobs, they get, they, they're like, okay, no, I know how to do this. I don't have to think about it anywhere. Our job is the only job that requires us every day to question whether what we're doing is right or not. And, and it's really a key part of, uh, uh of being a successful investor. So. Totally agree. Um, Jim, let me ask you this question, because given your background on the fixed income markets, you know, there's a lot of folks who listen to the podcast who are really kind of like myself. Uh, they're just mm -hmm. equity people, right? Yeah. So so for a person who's got that differentiated background and perspective, mm -hmm. as we uh, fixed income noobs, if you will, are trying <laughs> to pay attention to what mm -hmm. can be learned or the insight from the fixed income market, what should we be thinking? What should we be listening for, or looking for? That's a great question. Um, I've honestly never thought about that question before, so I might I might hem and haw and take a while before I. Before no, that's I all right. That. That's all right. Um, you know, I, I I would say that that I would often when I worked inside of the big banks, we would have the credit people or the foreign exchange group or the equity group come over and like ask us questions whenever rates were were relevant. Um, there was a lot of times rates were not relevant. So people didn't care at all what was going on. You know, I, I, I would say that that fixed income is is pretty important. I mean, and, and I think most people, even if you're an equity person, you understand, you know, discounting cash flows is what determines the present value. And that matters a lot, whether rates are at one percent or six percent. And so so you know having a general understanding for the level of rates and the impact it can have i think a lot of people get practical exposure to that you know it's like oh i could buy this house and my payment was x thousand dollars a month and now mortgage rates are double and now it's you know this much more and so now i get how higher rates can impact stuff um you know i, I would say that fed watching is very difficult even for those of us that spend many many hours a day trying to think about what to do. So I wouldn't advocate newbies to to be overly focused on that. Um, you know, I would I would think about broadly the equities that you own and what exposure they have to rates. So generally most companies do better when rates are going down than when rates are going up. The the rare exception is maybe like banks or insurance companies. They tend to do relatively well when when rates are higher because um, you know they can make mortgage rates at higher uh, uh, at higher levels or or the insurance companies can invest in um, you know in assets to pair with their liabilities at better rates. So there's a handful of companies that tend to do better. There's a lot of companies that do significantly worse. Um, I think it rehighlights to equity investors why you care about quality and why you care about balance sheets. Um, and I think over the next couple of years, 
if rates stay around here and and again that's the you know 80 percent chance you're going to get zero bowls of chocolate ice cream tonight <laughs> if if rates stay around here um you know over the next two years you're going to have a lot of refinancing that's going to need to be done by by companies you're going to certainly want to have owned companies that have very manageable debt levels so that they can they can manage their interest costs going up by 10, 20, 30% because they've got to refinance their, you know, 2% 10 year note that they issued 10 years ago. Now they've got to do a 7% note or a 6% note. So, so I, I think kind of going through that level of, if you're an equity investor, having a broad understanding of where long-term rates are, where short-term rates are, don't get overly focused about uh, trying to predict what the Fed's going to do because, I, I think if we learned anything in the last two or three years that the Fed doesn't often know what they're going to do. And sometimes <laughs> what they think uh, they're going to do is not the, <laughs> is not necessarily so, the right thing to do. So, so I'll gently push a little back on that, Jim, because sure. I, I, I think Powell has done a very good job of, you know, as the best he can at any given time, communicating what the Fed is likely to do. Um, I think the, the market's issue has been the market itself wanting to hear something that, um, it was convinced it was going to happen, but the market, you know, but the data didn't necessarily support it. Um, I, I'm trying here, Jim, to be as practical and analytical as you are uh, based on your bio. And that's that's what I think, honestly. I, I, I think the market has just gotten a little ahead of itself, you know, consistently regarding what it expects the Fed to do. I, I definitely agree. And and having spent the majority of my career in the Greenspan era, I would say Jay Powell is an amazing communicator because you can actually understand uh, what <laughs> he's saying. I, I don't know if the information that he communicates is oftentimes 100% what 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 I would agree with, but that's why we have markets. So, uh, But I he is a very good communicator. Um, it's a very hard job, right? It's like it's like a referee, right? You only notice him when mistakes are happening. So uh, yeah. I certainly have no desire to to ever get in that position because I've pl plenty of people questioning what I do every day in my current job. So I wouldn't need uh, you know three hundred million people depending on me for that. So I, well, it's more than that. I I think <laughs> uh, although I, I I do think it was pretty funny though that you called out the Greenspan murmur, you know, where, yeah. where he where he I think he he admitted. That he is sometimes intentionally would do that to kind of befuddle uh, the people he was speaking to, which is just, you know, all I, all sorts of awesome. I I think one of society's uh, unfortunate scenarios is that AI wasn't a thing during the Greenspan era. Because I would love to see an AI translation from Greenspan into what he actually would make. I, I don't know. I don't know how much training you'd need on those models to have it make sense. But I, I certainly couldn't make sense of it back then. And and uh, you know, to your point, I think he, a lot of times he was doing it intentionally. So. <laughs> Well, Jim, before we get out of here, and, and I have to say, I want to thank you for your time and your insight. Um, thank you. And, and as well as the conversation. But before we get out of here, is, is there anything that we didn't talk about that we need to you know, just touch on before, we, again, before we hang it up and uh, we, we're done with today's conversation? No, I, I think we I think we touched on a lot of really great, great topics. Um, you know, I, I especially after a year like 23, where it seemed like a certain number of things were working and other things were not working. You know, w one of the things that I always, I always tell our, our clients is that, is that times change. Um, and, and one of the most dangerous things that you can do is just extrapolate from recent history. Um, and, and in environments like this, where you've got a handful of names that did really, really well. And again, I'm not calling for 
crash of the Magnificent Seven. I'm just, if those names have crept up to 30, 40, 50, 60% of your portfolio, just think, you know, maybe I should reduce a little bit, you know, because the odds of a $3 trillion company going to 10 trillion is, is, is pretty low compared to, you know, smaller companies that have more growth prospects. So, um, so, so I would say that would be, you know, the main, the main thing, uh, especially for, for your audience. So. I, I think the other part that you're saying without stating it though, Jim, is don't be afraid to prudently manage the portfolio and from time to time, take some profits. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you said it much better than I did. You, you clearly uh, are in the right seat doing this job. So <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. No, I mean, it, it's something that we do uh, with the AAP portfolio. We, we try to have, um, you know, a portfolio of 23 to 26 positions at any one given time. Um, you know, if you do the simple math, that kind of says eh, average around 4%, maybe a little higher, maybe a little less, depending on what's going on. And when we see names like United Rentals that's run tremendously since late October, you know, mm -hmm. when it crossed above 4% of the portfolio, we, we let our winner run there a little bit. Um, but we eventually took some profits on it. And that that's one example. There are others that I can name, obviously. But um, you, you can't be afraid to do that. And as a, a good friend of mine, Bob Lang, folks on the podcast will know Bob Lang. He's been on a number of times. He always said, um, no one ever went broke taking a profit. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Truer words have never been spoken. <laughs> All right. Well, well, Jim, hey, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, Thank I would you very love much, to have Chris. You back. I appreciate it. Well, we're not done with you because I'm going to ask you to come back later in the year, maybe sometime in the um, third quarter when we're kind of maybe starting to see Fed policy happen or maybe not. We kind of want to get an update on your thinking. Would, would you be open Absolutely. to that, Jim? A hundred percent. Would be happy to be back. Awesome. Awesome. Well, all right. Well, Jim, thank you so much. And, and Jim, uh, for folks who want to know more about GenTrust or follow mm -hmm. your thoughts, where can they go? Sure. Um, our website is uh, www.gentrustwm.com. So that's G-E-N-T-R-U-S-T-W-M as in wealthmanagement.com. Or you could just Google us and it takes you there pretty fast. So. Okay. And any socials or anything like that? Uh, we have a LinkedIn. That's our primary social. So you could also look up uh, for us on uh, on LinkedIn. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, folks will be able to see this conversation up on LinkedIn. Hopefully, uh, Jim and the others at GenTrust will listen and approve and like it. And uh, we'll, we'll be happy to share that. So, Jim, thank you so much. And Great. podcast podcast listeners, uh, that's our conversation today. We will be back with another uh, deep dive with you uh, or for you, I should say, next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Chris.